Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. And with me today, I have a very special guest, Kyle, from Microtype Engineering, uh, the company and the YouTube channel. Am I right? That is correct. Awesome. How are you, Kyle? Yeah, pretty good. Can't complain. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. I'm actually awake for once, which is uh, odd these days. <laughs> That's always a good start. Um, do you want to just introduce yourself, uh, maybe give us a little taste of who you are and what you do before we get started? Yeah, sure. So yeah, like you said, I run a company called Microtype Engineering and also do YouTube videos. Uh, the purpose of the company is essentially kind of a full service product design um, from concept to prototype and then production, primarily electronics based, but we'll certainly do um, a lot of the mechanical side as well. So kind of just, yeah, full, full service, pretty much whatever you need. Uh, how So how long ago, uh, for, okay, first of all, this is uh, your company or is this you and a partner's or what's the deal? This is my company. I started it back, and I know that was going to be going to be your follow up. I started it back formally in 2017, um, but I started doing this type of work as a freelancer while I was at uh, the university I went to. So I started doing that in like 2015 ish or so, and then just since it started doing way better than I ever thought. Then once I graduated school, I just kind of converted it into an actual company. What what do you think it is about the the work you were doing as a freelancer um, that companies and people latched onto it and, and made you so successful? Do you think it's the way that specifically you were handling things, or do you think that there's really like a deficit in the market where you placed yourself and that that made you successful? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I would say a lot of it is when people have like a product that they want to, because the way we, the way I started was pretty much all consumer electronics. So people have seen Shark Tank, they've seen all the, all the different places where you go get a patent and then you come up with a product. And for electronics specifically, a lot of the actual intricacies of building out an IoT device or a battery device, whatever, it's really, really intricate. And I guess to answer if there's a deficit in the market, I would say the deficit would be a lot of the people and companies who have the ability to design these products they don't really have the ability to kind of relay that information to someone who has no idea what they're doing. They just have a really cool idea. So I guess kind of what I had focused on really at the beginning is I'm pretty good with people and I, I can, uh, I'm pretty decent at explaining things. So I would say just by leaning on that and breaking a lot of really complex things down into more simple, like easy to digest chunks, I think that's what made it easier to relate to the clients, customers, company, whoever it might be. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. Um, I've had similar conversations with with people, but just in a theoretical sense. Like someone came up to me and would be like, "Hey, why doesn't anybody make you know X, Y, and Z?" And then they think, you know, it would be nice to have a product that does X, Y, and Z. That's you know about twenty bucks. You buy it, and then you're good to go. But I often explain to these people that, you know, the hours involved in the prototyping, 
the like catting up the uh, making resources uh, websites and and then sending off for production and then production problems and the actual assembly like that's a lot of work and of course if you made a billion of these things you probably hit your price point but for my, for bespoke low volume products i mean that price can be astronomical right yeah and that's that's another good point is people the whole amazon model what a lot of people don't realize and this is i'm sure we'll get to at some point uh kind of has shifted a little bit away from consumer electronics and more into more industrial mainly industrial but with like the amazon model what people don't realize is a lot of those quote unquote companies they see on Amazon that are selling your product that does X, Y, and Z for 20 bucks, that manufacturer over the factory in China has 30 or 40 different companies that sell that exact same product under different names. So even though it might appear like it's a pretty small company, they're actually buying it from a factory that's selling 2 million of them a year. And like you said, I mean, that that skews what is feasible price wise pretty immensely. Oh, yeah. I meant to make a, uh, a video on this, actually, the the especially so. So my background comes in uh, auto mechanics. I've been an auto mechanic 15, almost 16 years now. And a lot of the high value brands that you see in the automotive field, like uh, Snap-on, uh, Matco, Mac Tools, not all of their tools are made by them. A lot of them are just, you know, white box specials, which they uh, put their own either. Sometimes they go, you know, really far and put their own laser etching on the parts. Other times they literally put the, just their own sticker on the blow molded case. And if you go on Amazon, you will find these things for sale for something like a quarter, a third, a fifth, you know, sometimes a tenth of the price. And it very likely comes from the same friggin' factory. It's just that. Uh, what Mac, Matco, Snap-on will do is they'll do maybe an extra layer of uh, QA, uh, quality assurance, uh, or or validation, and then they'll st- slap their label on it, and they'll get a massive. They'll put a massive markup because they have their own label on. So I've I've actually meant to make a video that a lot of the stuff that we see with a brand name, that brand name is just. I mean, it's just reselling. It's and you know what? Some of them even drop ship. They don't even bother stocking the stuff. They just ship it directly from the manufacturer. It's crazy how it works today. And what's funny with that too, exactly what you're saying. So one of my one of my main hobbies, or probably my main hobby, is actually uh, I don't know if you've heard of disc golf, like frisbee golf. Yep. So I'm pretty big into that, and even though it's it's growing pretty rapid, it's still obviously a super super niche sport. Like when you tell people you do it, ninety five percent of them ask what it is, and there's like four or five main brands out there, and they make like the the actual backpacks and bags that you wear them, and they sell these things up to like three hundred three hundred and fifty dollars. And it's like the market's obviously not that big, but what's crazy is if you look on Alibaba or AliExpress, you can find every single one of the top bags from every one of those manufacturers for sale there for 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks. And it's like, it's just crazy to me that they can source that many for a niche sport and then they relist them on Alibaba. It's like, go figure. 
It's crazy. And sometimes it's even the chicken and the egg. You don't know if a top brand has designed it and then manufactured in China. And then that Chinese manufacturer is selling the, uh, you know, a second shift out the back door. Or if the Chinese manufacturer just adapted one of their own designs and then all these companies came and they, they bought them up. It's really hard to say which one is which. Yes. And I actually I, I wonder that quite a bit because it's like it's crazy to think that a factory over in China would design a Frisbee golf bag. But I guess crazier things have happened. Yeah, I find uh, disc golf is kind of like the uh, the everyman's golf. It's exactly. kind of uh, golf is kind of like a, you know, kind of like a highbrow yep. collared shirt type of sport. But disc golf is so for those of you wondering I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't actually play. But uh, uh, disc golf is basically um, it's played on either a golf course or something similar to a golf course. There is like a uh, like a pin, but that pin is is up in the air and then there's like chains on it. And your goal is to to throw the Frisbee to hit the chains in as few throws as possible. Is that about the gist? Yep. It's the analogy I use. It's it's absolutely identical to real ball golf, except you're throwing a Frisbee into a basket, like you said. And um, my wife used to play ultimate Frisbee, which is kind of like Frisbee soccer. And I'll tell you, I'll tell the listeners out there who think that disc golf is easy. There is a lot of technique into throwing a Frisbee. So don't, don't judge it until you've tried it. That's what I would say. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, my wife can uh, can flick, I guess, uh, backhanded um, uh, a frisbee, and that thing is like an arrow. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yes. If you catch it wrong, you you break a finger. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, do does electronics uh, overlap a little bit with uh, disc golf, or is this still a very analog sport? Oh yeah, I mean they've started doing some like like Bushnell does some of the range finders, but presumably that's just a real golf range finder that has a indicator for a basket so now it's it's pretty i mean there's some smartphone apps but that's about it and you go uh actually onto golf courses are there like are there courses that do um sort of like both they have the 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 flag for the hole and the pin for the disc golf so for us here in florida it's all like woods courses so there's zero overlap when you watch like the professionals on uh, on YouTube or whatnot, that's where they use a lot of real golf courses for like recreational ones that are set up. At least in this area, they're all pretty much custom wooded ones. But I know out in like the Midwest, they do exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of overlap in the needs of a golfer and a disc golfer. I mean. You also, as a disc golfer, you don't want a direct, I mean, a direct path to the pin yep. all the time. It's just, that would be, it just becomes a, you know, a hurling sport instead of a strategy sport then. Exactly. Did you, uh, have you done any tournaments or, or are you just playing for fun? Just for fun. That's kind of one of my goals to start doing next year uh, after the first of the year, but we'll see. I've just been kind of practicing a lot lately. Okay. Um, so let's bring it back to your company because this is what interests me the most. Um, I have my dreams of, of opening a company, but I, I don't think I'm responsible enough and self-motivated enough to do so. Um, so um, what, like when you took the leap from prototyping in college to making this a business, like how was that process like? And, and were you like nervous? Were you worried that your business wouldn't work? So that's something that, 
that kind of people will talk to me about a lot because again I, I base a lot of a lot of what I've gone through and what I deal with with clients off of Shark Tank so in anyone out there who hasn't or doesn't watch Shark Tank a lot yes there's the Hollywood side but if you have any aspirations of doing anything in business you have to watch that show you can learn like an unbelievable amount off of that so when you see people on there it's always it seems to be like the leap of faith that you said like they they quit their job and they went full force i i was one of the fortunate few that really never had to make that leap so when i was in school I was doing this on the side to where it was like low key, like if I didn't have work, it doesn't matter. I'm just uh, in school. I can keep doing all that. It's good side money. Then when it started getting a little bit busier was the year I graduated and I was working on for the previous two years, a uh, couple research projects in, uh, in one of the biomedical labs, not not really electronics based, but there was a little bit of overlap. And I got on there as a paid researcher. So I was getting paid through the university to work there. And I was essentially running the entire project with that and then a startup in the same lab. So I had a ton of free time outside of that. And that's when I started building out Microtype. So for me, it wasn't a leap of faith as much as it was, I am insanely fortunate and I'm able to do this almost full time while still making enough money to live. And then at the end of when that startup unfortunately did not make it, it was at that point to where I was getting enough work from my company to where I could just kind of transition to it. So obviously things had to fall perfectly for that to be the case but definitely I, I look back and I, I am much much more fortunate than most people when it comes to to making the leap or doing something like that well that's awesome that's really good that it worked that way um, can you give us maybe an idea of the types of of prototyping the types of products that you would do for customers it doesn't have to be specifics but just give us sort of an idea of you know, what uh, a potential client of yours would be asking of you? Yeah, so at the at the start, like I said, it was pretty much exclusively consumer electronics. So it would be a lot of Kickstarter type things. So someone would have an idea for some widget and they they don't need it to be in a final form and function like perfect product ready to sell. They just kind of needed a way. They have some napkin sketches, maybe even a CAD drawing or something, but they need it in a professional looking package to where they can go on Kickstarter and start showing it off. And what I absolutely love, even, even to this day where I'm not doing as much uh, consumer products, is like when you say an example of something we do, that's what I love about this is I literally can't even give you something like that because every single product we do is completely different. So some people get into like a niche of doing, I don't know, automotive. Some people do aerospace, some like specifics. Literally anything that walks in or, or calls us, we try to do. And I think that's what makes it so much more interesting because honestly, it's very rare that when we start doing the electronics design for something, 
there's not at least two or three parts of it that I've never done before. I'm using a part I've never touched before and having to kind of figure out and, and start from scratch on it, which keeps it from being boring. I think this is a very important thing and a very important lesson that you just mentioned uh, that everyone can learn from. And I know me personally as well. Um, very, very often when I speak to people who are self-employed like you and doing work similar to what you're doing, um, they always tell me that they often have to tackle problems for the first time ever, like use things for the first time ever, play with parts that they've never seen before, maybe do a bunch of coding that they don't know how to do at first. And it feels like what's really needed for success is not the ability to do everything, but the ability to um, maybe handle the situations that you've never handled before, whether that be um, being able to learn it or being able to maybe subcontract it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that that summarizes it in a complete nutshell. Even even while I was in school, we would have a kind of a running joke, me and my friends, is it's like you don't go to engineering school to learn how to do specific engineering things. You literally go to engineering school to learn how to learn. And when we're doing a project for the first time, yeah, it, it's literally I'm like a professional problem solver. It's like, sure, I, I have a pretty big toolkit of stuff that I can reference from and pick up and use in projects over and over again. But yeah, if you don't have the ability to both problem solve and delegate and be a good people manager and make sure you hire people who are better than you, you're never going to make it at any sort of, not even engineering, any sort of design-based industry. Because that, that is, I mean, that what you had said summarizes it. And then just to add on is being able to hire people in those specific parts of it that are better than you. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Uh, I mean, for um, an automotive professional such as myself, who also teaches the automotive trade, um, I'll teach my students, for example, how to perform a brake service. I teach them the basics, you know, this part slides on this part. So this part needs to be lubricated and cleaned, you have to keep rust away from this part, etc. But the truth is that nearly every single vehicle out there, even though the brakes work the same, they are different. So you you're only learning how to discern which parts need to be lubricated and which parts should not be lubricated, the the rest of the experience is on you. And so really they're coming to the my technical school, my trade school, to learn, you know, how to tell which situations to apply what, but not how to actually do it. You need you need that hands-on. So I, I think maybe I've I've split the analogy a little bit here, but I think I think we're kind of barking up the same tree. Yeah. No, that, that totally sounds pretty much identical. So when you say we, because you're talking about your, your business as, as we, um, does that mean you have employees? Yeah, so right now, including myself, I have uh, six, so not including myself, five employees, and then also use like three uh, subcontractors depending on the job. Um, so then just under 10 people total, including subs. 
Oh, that's uh, that's growing. That's growing quite quick for having started formally in 2017. How long was it until you actually got your full first full time employee? So I relied on subcontractors for quite a while. Probably, I think probably 2019 ish when they set up the assembly line. The first setup, uh, and obviously having people in person, you can't keep doing this sub route and. It's funny, like the employee versus subcontractor. It's like every industry you hear, it's like, oh, you want to have as many uh, 1099s. You don't want to have employees. But the issue is when you deal with anything that is NDA'd or any sort of proprietary info, a lot of those NDAs will not allow any third parties to touch it without a separate NDA. So you're kind of forced to make as many people an employee as possible, which I mean, works out. It it simplifies things, but it's just kind of funny how the difference in in the actual industry that you work in. I also have a feeling that your subcontractors won't handle the same kind of scope as a regular employee would. Like, for example, if you're subcontracting me to do software, and I would advise you that is a terrible idea. Uh, but if you were to do that and something comes up with board design, it's not like I could knock that off on my lunch break or, you know, work extra hours to knock that off. You hired me for software. I'm dealing with only software. But if you had me in-house and it was something that I could handle, then that could take that off your plate too. I don't know if I'm if I'm right on that one. Yeah, uh, I would say, I'm trying to think of any exceptions, pretty much every sub that I have had or have either has been that's what they do full time so you don't have to worry about any other obligations or they're retired or semi-retired to where you don't have to worry about the lunch break side but as for the specifics of the scope yeah I, I would agree but it it's so dependent on the specific circumstance it's hard to do like an overgeneralization on it. Yeah, that's true. Do you see sort of uh, where your company is headed in the future? Or are you guys just in kind of, you're so busy that you're in maintenance mode at the moment? So it's weird. At the start of COVID, it was by far the busiest like I ever would have considered it getting. And it was not funny, but it was odd. Like you were hearing like in the first like six months of COVID, like, People are losing their jobs. People, companies can't can't keep the doors open, all this. And it's like, I felt super weird because it's like when people would ask, oh, how are you handling COVID? I'm like, it's like the busiest I've ever been. But what has been an odd ripple effect, I guess, is in the past like three or four months, it's been getting quite slow. So... And it's not just unique to me or even this industry. I've talked to several other people in like the design type or in design fields. And it seems like kind of the R&D side right now, a lot of companies are in limbo and they're kind of nervous about spending money because at the start of COVID, it was like, oh, we have free time. We have money. We need to get some stuff designed. Let's go for it. Now they're kind of like, oh, it's been COVID for like two years. There's a massive chip shortage. Let's let's hold off and just keep doing what we've been doing. So to answer your question where it's going, I got to see how COVID plays out. In the past like month or two specifically, 
uh, it's been getting to be to where if a specific job comes up with the chip shortage, I'm going to have to start turning people away because there's literally for certain parts, there's no options to what, what you can use. And that's what worries me pretty much more than anything. It's, it's gotten really bad. On the upside, it's uh, the chip shortage is is set to clear around uh, mid twenty twenty three to late twenty twenty three. So um, <laughs> I guess it's going to be a couple of years of battening down the hatches. I mean, the that the chip shortage is ridiculous because as far as I heard, what had happened with it is that there was like kind of this perfect storm of a bunch of companies releasing. Uh, like sort of their next generation products all at the same time. And then uh, COVID saw these, uh, the, 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 the silicon manufacturers uh, ramp down production, not only because they want to keep their employees safe because they assumed uh, global demand would go down. And then what happened when they had to reboot all those factories, global demand was already up and COVID increased the demand for for silicon products because now all of a sudden everybody's working from home uh all these companies are trying to innovate the gen the new generation of you know memory and uh and, and silicon for pretty much every company you got apple with their m1 chips you got nvidia with their new graphics cards uh, i mean it, it's and oh and the cryptocurrency boom all this stuff made like a perfect storm and to top that all off a lot of shipping companies assumed that business was going to slow. So they, they I, I don't know what, what you call that, but they, they kind of like set aside their, their ships. They like de- temporarily decommissioned their ships. And it turned out that the shipping was more of a requirement, not less, especially going to the West. So it's like this huge storm. And it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon because that estimate of 2023, I mean, they just keep, Every six months, they keep pushing the estimate back. So who knows when it's going to end? It, it's it's brutal. Yeah, and that's, I don't know. I obviously, being more on the design side, having to constantly be checking what parts are out there across like almost every sector, everything you said is is absolutely true. And it's certainly what the official explanation is. But, and I don't want to get too far down the, uh, and I mean, obviously this topic's been covered to death, but while all of that is certainly true, um, a lot of those perfect storms have happened in the past and they've cleared up. The cryptocurrency back in 2017 was certainly just as crazy. The big, 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 big issue that's going on right now, and you don't hear it talked about as much because it's kind of a touchy subject, is there's a lot of uh, companies, a lot of government funded companies across the world who are essentially snatching up the parts the second they become available. And there's, there's theories or scenarios out there that people are thinking they're doing backdoor deals with some of these manufacturers because the third party market of parts, there's more parts out there than there has been released on the OEM market for the past year. Like some, a couple people I know who work in the parts procurement industry, they are getting third party, which is considered like OEM excess parts from this year's date code. So that means they got the parts in 2021 and that part officially was not on any distribute, uh, any third, any 
first party distributor or sold from the OEM directly since 2020. So where are they getting those parts? Because it's just, it's, it's so easy to just pin it on, oh yeah, there was COVID, there was a shortage, all that. Not to this extent. And when that part of it ends, it's the same thing with the scalping with uh, graphics cards. The only way it ends is when there's such a surplus of parts, the scalpers can't afford to buy up all the stock, which, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even want to dream about how long that might take. I, I hope I'm wrong, but a lot of the signs are pointing to it kind of being the only option, at least to a certain extent. I 100% believe you because what, what people need to understand that, that I'm sure you do, but you haven't mentioned it is that, uh, silicon production is very specialized, especially down in the, in the low amount of uh, nanometers, the, the, the tiny, tiny transistors and the FinFET designs. It is, you could, you could feasibly start a factory, um, to, to produce these, uh, you know, five nanometers or seven nanometer designs, but it would take something like, like five, six years to, to get the expertise necessary just by trial and error. And from the knowledge base we already have, which is non-proprietary in order to actually get successful yields. So, uh, people need to remember that, that, uh, especially in the very specialized cutting edge stuff, that's a that's a specialty thing. You just you can't just go out and start a company to make new stuff. It's not that simple. And so uh, when you keep that in mind, knowing that manufacturing space and time is a uh, hot commodity, it just makes a lot of sense that uh, companies would be scalping themselves, like scalping their own customers first, because I mean, just look look at what happened in the entertainment industry with uh, you know concert tickets. I mean, the, every time there's a scarce commodity, there's opportunity for scalping, and it all it pretty much happens overtly. Like Ticketmaster is pretty overtly um, taking advantage of the limited you know seats and stuff. So I believe you. I hundred percent believe you. Yeah, and the issue is, and yeah, obviously that's why the the twenty twenty three number is there, and that is the number that I tend to believe because, like you said, all of those fabs that hurried up and got got put into uh, planning back when COVID, when they realized what was happening, they from like an experienced fab, it takes anywhere from like two to three years for it to be up and running. So that pins it at that twenty twenty three. So at that point, there will be a massive massive amount of excess supply being produced but it's like right now like when and actually this just happened like two days ago one of the parts that we had used for a prototype it uh it, the design worked and we needed to order more but obviously that part was out of stock and he was like oh well let's you had mentioned you you know some people can get uh, excess parts let's see and get a quote and what people also don't realize is this isn't like a concert ticket or something else to where, oh yeah, it's normally MSRP 30 bucks. You might spend 40 bucks, 50 bucks. I can still do it. Some of these parts, like I've gotten quotes for like a $2 and change LED driver. They're like $35. Some of the STM 32s that are like in the F7 or F4 series, they went pretty quick. They're literally selling a $4 STM 
for like $150. It's like you can't absorb that cost. So that's why so many of these CMs and other companies are going out of business because it's like you can't have a part that costs $100 when you sell the entire product for $80. So you make or you lose less money by just not selling anything than selling things at a loss that immense. And it's just, it, it's such a shame and it's it's tragic to see these companies go out of business for something that they had no control over. And that's the part I wish, I really wish the media would start covering the chip shortage. Sure, it's bad for automotive. Sure, it's bad for building a computer and NVIDIA and AMD. It's really bad for any company that sells any product that has any sort of electronics and kind of showing like the mom and pop companies that it's affecting them. I think that kind of gives it a better narrative than just these, oh, massive companies, they screwed themselves. It's like, no, kind of the other people are way, way more uh, at risk than them. Oh, absolutely. And and, I mean, uh, Sion, the unexpected maker is a great example of that. Uh, I mean, Perfect he is example. still, yeah, he's still very much mom and pop. Like, yeah, he maybe makes hundreds of boards, uh, you know, per run, but it doesn't matter. Like when, when a, a reel of a part costs them something like 80% more, I mean, you need a healthy profit margin in order to stay in business. Cause if you don't have that profit margin, it'll get eaten up by other things like, stuff that gets damaged in shipping or, or delays or, you know, whatever it just gets eaten up. And then again, like you said, it's more worthwhile just to not sell anything. You, you would be losing less money. It's, it's ridiculous. So Sion's being affected by it. Um, you got Dustin Watts selling the, uh, ESP 32 touchdown. I think his bill of materials, uh, only went up something like, you know, uh, Actually, I don't know if he published how much it went up, but his bill of, bill of materials went up and he compensated by raising the price a little bit, but the rest of it, he's eating. His profit is is diminishing. And so, you know, if you get to a point where you're relying on your, your product sales to keep you afloat, I mean, at some point you're going to price yourself out of the market. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, no question. And it's just... I always have a thing. It's like if you run a business and you make really poor business decisions and something happens and you end up going out of business, okay, fair enough. You you didn't plan right. But I just hate when stuff like this to where it doesn't matter how well you ran your business, even if, because at the start of all this, I'm like, oh, there goes the just-in-time, the Toyota model, that's out the window. Sure, if you had inventory, you were better off. But there's next to no companies who are going to float two years of inventory. So it's like no matter what planning you possibly could have done, you were going to get affected by this. And that's what I really, really don't like because it's like they they did absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, even if you did float two years worth of inventory, if something happened on the consumer side where the consumers stopped buying your product, you're just as screwed with a warehouse full of inventory you can't do anything with. Yes, exactly. So just in time, maybe is a little too close and, you know, two years of inventory is too far. Like it's just, it's impossible to predict if to predict these things. Yep. No question. And that's a lot of companies are definitely reevaluating their supply chain now more than ever. 
I think I think it's time for governments to reevaluate whether or not they want to be that dependent on outside resources. Um, it's it. I mean, I get the here in Canada we say, you know, you don't need to buy a snowblower if your neighbor owns one. But um, I I think at some point, you know, if um, if your neighbor starts being a jerk and doesn't let you you know rent a snowblower anymore, you're going to be in trouble. So I, I do like the fact that I know the U.S. and Canada, at least those two, have said they're interested and they're building uh, silicon fabs uh, in, you know, in their own country. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's too late. But, it, but today is better than you know, tomorrow, basically. Yes, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. And obviously not to get into the political side of here versus there. But that is absolutely the biggest, in my opinion, benefit of all of this is, and I forget what the latest figure is, but we're talking hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars have been devoted to by both private uh, equity and government spending in pretty much every major company, any every major country in the world to develop more foundries. And especially, I believe the two biggest, I don't know about China, but the US and actually South Korea had put in a ton of money. So once this is over, we hopefully will have a very, very big insulator to where this really shouldn't happen again. But it's just how bad is it going to get before we start seeing that surplus or seeing that excess? Oh, yeah. And you and I probably know the answer. It's it's going to be pretty bad. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, again, trying to avoid the political stuff as much as possible. But, you know, Canada had a major uh, vaccine manufacturing business here about uh, 10, 10, seven years ago. And it was uh, sold off, privatized and eventually offshored by that private company. And I think I think it ended up somewhere in China. And we were caught with our pants down during this pandemic because of that. So, you know, in my opinion, um, Canada needs to own its own uh, vaccine manufacturing and they need to not sell it to private companies who are only driven by profit. I mean, it's just it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, now that makes sense. Um, let's uh, let's try to go away from politics a little bit, because I know some people do get a little heated and upset about that. Um, do you ever do electronics as a hobby anymore or do you always have business on the brain when you're doing electronics? That it's so funny that you asked that. Honestly, every, every person I talk to about this, I guess just because of the, the whole maker community and DIY 3d printing, that's what everyone thinks of when they hear about electronics and you'll love the analogy because it's so pertinent to you is I always use the analogy of it's like, why do mechanics never work on their own car? And it's honestly kind of the same thing here. I, and I, when I was on Sion's uh, stream, I pretty sure this got brought up too. the 3d printers we have included and all of the electronics other than like one or two little gadgets, like years ago, I honestly have never built or printed or anything outside of for work everything is for that and that's why part of it is i mean i guess honestly the bulk of it is it's just when i get done designing a board or designing boards all day i don't really want to go home and sit down grab a beer and say okay 
let me go ahead and design a board for fun. It just kind of becomes something. That's why I like disc golf, do something completely different. So yeah, to answer your question, no, I really don't do anything whatsoever outside of work for fun with electronics. And and that's completely fair. And I mean, I do, for example, I do YouTube um, more for fun. Like I would, I wish one day it would uh, support me a little bit because of the nature of teaching is very uh, contract based. Like right now I'm not working for four months. Let's see, September, October, November, December, and half of January. So um, four and a half months. So it would be nice in order to get, you know, to, for, for YouTube to just kind of support me a little bit in those periods. Um, but I have to say when I am doing electronics, I'm mostly doing it with YouTube in mind because whatever interests me that day or that week or whatever, I always have in my mind, how am I going to show people what I'm doing? So everything I do has kind of that in mind. Uh, I also know that small business owners are never really off the clock. And so that's why I was wondering that way. Do, do you feel as though you can completely decompress, turn off your cell phone and just, you know, be one with the disc golf? Or are you always, you know, you, are you always kind of responsible to your business first? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's obviously the million dollar question. Uh, so this will be probably a little more of a long winded answer, but basically, so two I guess now three years, three years ago, when I really started getting into building out the business, a couple clients that I had had wanted to have uh, their boards. They were seeing if we could uh, produce them here, like we could do the assembly and everything in a line we set up and financially everything had made sense. So got the assembly line all running to do with that. We were kind of up to I don't know, several, depending on the board, several thousand a month or so. And then that worked out really well. And then a year and a half-ish, kind of at the start of COVID, a little bit before, we expanded it out into like a full line with the eight-zone oven, uh, through-hole selective solder. Um, yeah, it was two ovens, uh, pick and place, uh, selective solder, and then just got a much bigger space. And for the start of COVID, everything, that was when we were super busy. So that just started taking a massive, massive toll on like my mental health because there was absolutely no way for me to, like you said, shut off my phone and, and just enjoy life. And it, I mean, it was, it was so bad to where like I would wake up at three in the morning, two in the morning, take out my phone, start trying to figure out something, then end up on my computer. And I had gone to bed the night before at like midnight. So it's like, it got to the point to where it just wasn't really living life. So like at the start of 2021, I pretty much by myself made the decision to stop doing any production assembly and just use the line for like prototypes and like real small batch boards and focus more back on the design side, which is obviously how I got started. And that was the single best decision decision I ever made because an issue that I have uh, is, is way, way too much of a perfectionist. So I have read 
virtually every single IPC document, which IPC is like the gold standard for electronics, both design and assembly. So it's like every single board that would come out of our line had to be perfect. I would agonize over every little detail if we were doing something wrong and it just got to the point to where it clearly was not healthy. So long-winded to your answer, um, in the past, I guess now, 10 months or so since focusing more on the design side, yes, it has gotten like night and day better. I mean, it's still it's still tough sometimes when you're when you're dealing with electronics, especially to where you make a wrong decision. I mean, people people get hurt, die, property gets damaged. It, it's a pretty big responsibility. But having really good people who are able to to work with you to check your work and everything definitely takes a load off. So it's definitely gotten better. And I would say not fully able to unplug, but pretty, pretty close, especially, especially as of, as of more recently. Well, that's good to hear. I, I get similar. So you say you're a perfectionist. I, I simply don't have the skill set to be a profession, a perfectionist. I do do that when I'm uh, working on cars, for example, I don't take shortcuts when I, uh, when I fix cars. And I think that's why a lot of people uh, refuse to get their car worked by, uh, worked on by anybody but me. But what I do get when I do electronics is I get tunnel vision. I get this idea of the way that I want to do things. And I will just, I won't go get advice from anybody else because I have in my mind the way I want to do it and I stick to it. And it always, you know, typically backfires for me. So that's the kind of fixation uh, I get. But, but what you're saying about like stuff being always, you know, you always kind of, have to be uh, on on the clock mentally kind of thing. I totally feel that even with this rinky dink YouTube channel to be to be honest. Um, in fact, I when I forgot to reply to you, uh, that's because I got your email while I was in bed. And I was like, Oh, uh, okay, well, right now, I'm decompressing. I can't like I can't, I can't do this. I'll just I'll get back to him once I'm back at my desk. And then you know, I completely forgot. So you know, <laughs> This is why this is a rinky dink and not a not a business. You know what I mean? That's funny. Yeah, no that that certainly that certainly makes sense. And it's just it it became a, a factor of weighing. It's like I was literally miserable doing all of this, and it's like the whole purpose I went into this was to avoid being miserable at a nine to five office job working for someone else. So it's like, if I am miserable doing this, how is this any better than working for someone else? So kind of coming to that realization was what made it a lot easier for me to decide kind of the future going forward. That's, yeah, that's really nice. Um, so let's say that this podcast, for whatever reason, goes viral and your business becomes more busy than you've ever been and you need to hire on more people. What kind of uh, employee do you look for? What kind of what kind of traits do you look for in employees? So the the number one, I would split it to be two key things that I look for. The first one is communication. And I'm not saying obviously, we're, we're engineers, there's a lot of issues with communication. And I'm not saying you have to be great at writing reports, great at all of this. 
what I am saying, and this is something I still struggle with with the people who work for me now, is if there's an issue that you find, tell me the second you find it. If we had talked about, oh, yeah, you like someone, one of my employees will be like, oh, yeah, I think we can finish it uh, by the end of this week. Okay, fantastic. I make a note. We're planning on finishing it this week. Friday comes along. Oh, yeah, some stuff ran behind. I don't think it's going to be done until Wednesday of next week. It's like that isn't the end of the world. That's that's fine if we have to push back. But you obviously realized this three days ago. So the instant something comes up, you have to have the ability to to communicate it. And then I would say the second biggest thing is you have to have the ability to 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 show that someone else is doing it wrong. Exactly like what you were saying, you get tunnel vision. I certainly will get like that sometimes. And if I am doing like a design review, like we'll post in Slack to review the schematic or whatnot, if you are afraid or you don't feel comfortable saying, oh, something's wrong here or whatnot, then you essentially don't have, you don't have a purpose in a small business because you have to be not afraid to talk about or point out when something isn't working or you don't think it's going to work. So I would say those are kind of the two things with the obvious assumption that you have to know what you're doing. You have to be good at problem solving. All of that stuff is obviously a given. Yeah, you just wouldn't consider someone who wasn't good at thinking on their feet and didn't have the requisite skills or, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. How, how, uh, how strongly does attitude factor into it? Because I know um, in the automotive industry right now, uh, we are at a skill deficit. There's not many people joining the trade, uh, mostly because the trade has been quite abusive to, to its employees in the past. Um, but most of the employers, they say, you know what, I'm just looking for someone with a good attitude who can be taught. They don't, they don't even care what level of skill people are at. They will hire anybody that has a good attitude. Does that factor into your industry as well? As the industry as a whole? Absolutely. Uh, me personally, absolutely not. Unfortunately, and I've gone the route of hiring interns too. It's, it's a portion of me or a lot of it is my fault, if not all of it is my fault, but it's it's the part of being a small company. I can't afford to hire somebody who, one, isn't able to immediately start producing work that we can charge for. And second, I have to now take time away from work that we bill for to train the other person or train the intern. So in the industry, absolutely, and obviously that's the only way people can learn and gain gain knowledge and gain a skill set, but I think that has to be with a bigger company where here it just, I hired one intern and it's not no fault of him. It was, again, the fault of me and how this was structured. I just don't think it makes sense if you don't have at least the infrastructure to kind of devote one person to kind of training them. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, do you prefer a um, someone who's mastered a one specific thing, or do you prefer uh, someone who's uh, who knows a little about a lot of stuff? It depends. For the most part, I would say the former, because I would like to say 
the biggest strength that I have technically is that you're going to be hard pressed to find something in this sector that I don't know about and I'm not at least good at. So I feel like having another person like me isn't that useful. So I like to have people who are more laser focused, like they're specifically with firmware. Uh, he's specifically with PCB layout. He's specifically with like one or two of these things. Um, it is nice to have on the firmware side specifically, because I think it's the most analogous in, in what we do. It's really nice to have someone who can do firmware and electronics design from the schematic standpoint because obviously they go hand in hand and having a firmware guy who can both troubleshoot and look at uh, the electronics side is invaluable. Before the couple people I have now who can do both of those, the firmware guy I had was pretty much exclusively on the firmware end. And I mean, he's one of, if not the most gifted programmers I've ever, I've ever experienced being around we certainly made it work, but having someone who is quite competent at the electronic side is really, really helpful. Sorry for just firing these questions at you real quick. I'm just really interested about about your business. Yep, no worries. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Um, you're. I see that on your YouTube channel, you're using uh, KiCad or KiCad. I still really don't know how to pronounce it. Um, is there any reason why you picked uh, KiCad uh, over something like? Altium or Eagle? Yeah, so first off, the pronunciation is KiCad. I try to be a rebel, and I think that KiCad sounds atrocious. So I always say KiCad, and it's funny when people like correct me because it's like, I, I know I'm, I'm saying it wrong. I just don't think that the way that you're supposed to is right. So either way, um, yeah, so pretty much everything we do is in KiCad. We'll do stuff in other software packages if it's provided for that job or if it's something that that specific client needs. But I would say, honestly, there's a few factors. The most obvious and the most direct is since a lot of the business we get is from YouTube. That's treated exactly like an extension of the business, especially from advertising. So if I was using Altium day to day, that means I essentially have to kind of relearn KiCad when I do videos. So that's the most like upfront. The other reasons are we do, I mean, semi high speed designs. I mean, we'll go up to, we'll go up to HDMI, we'll go up to DRAM, uh, USB Gen 2, stuff like that. We're not doing a ton of DDR memory. We're not doing any crazy RF stuff. So that's where really the main benefits come from a cadence, from an Altium, from one of those pro level softwares. So it's just not needed. I mean, KiCad is, is the most amazing open source software out there, I think, excluding some of the programming IDs and stuff. So it just, it really hasn't been the need. I mean, the ability to also have all the Python scripting, I think is invaluable. And with KiCad 6 coming out, which will hopefully we'll see support Python 3 natively, I think that's a big step forward. And it's just really cool to be around a community that enables a company like us, a professional design firm, to be able to use an open source software. I 
I think that's really cool. And outside of like true software, I don't think that really exists in any other industry. Yeah, I agree. I would actually be supporting the, um, the KiCad initiative if I had any sorts of extra money because it, it's an amazingly powerful uh, piece of kit for what it is and especially for the price. I mean, I think I was looking into Altium and they had uh, like their base um, their base license. You were limited to a four-layer uh, four board, whereas KiCad, I think you could go up to eight or 16 it's i don't know it's it's ridiculous that there's these artificial boundaries in software you pay for but keycad's just like here have it for free have it for free yeah i think i think the limitation you're thinking of uh i when i when we've looked into altium i haven't seen that i think eagle has the four layer limitation and they have a size limitation um but yeah it it's always funny when they put in limitations that are not actually there. They just do it to separate out price brackets. I think that's a really shady thing that a lot of companies and people do. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. And you know, product differentiation. I, I come from the automotive world. I know exactly, you know, they auto manufacturers will put a $10 screen in a $5 Bluetooth module and charge two grand more for the car. I'm well aware of this, but yeah, it just doesn't sit correctly with me. And I'm, a, I'm actually a little sad that, Easy EDA now is getting so much attention because I'm not a fan of browser-based solutions. I really like installing software and having stuff that works offline. So I feel almost like a lot of the um, the, the mental effort from the community is going into add-ons for Easy EDA instead of maybe add-ons for KiCad or KiCad development. So uh, I don't know. I'm a little. I, I love when people design cool stuff but i'm a little torn on on that one because i really like eCAD, but i can see some brilliant minds are already switching to easy eda yeah i mean i i haven't followed and seen like what you're saying like the the surge in easy eda but it's like in this honestly i haven't looked into anything with easy eda in at least like two or three years so I'm, perhaps things have changed but for me, it was always like, yes, for if you're doing true hobby level stuff, sure, there's there's nothing stopping you from designing anything like that in Easy EDA. I just don't think that it's even Eagle, which I, I have a pretty strong distaste for Eagle with a lot of the changes with Autodesk and whatnot. But at least Eagle, I would certainly consider that to be at some extent a professional ECAD software. KiCad absolutely is. I mean, we use it in a professional setting where I just don't think, and again, things might have changed. Easy EDA just doesn't seem to be a professional level level tool. So I, I doubt you're going to see any, at least I would presume you wouldn't see any actual companies using something like that. The browser-based being one of the reasons, the others just being it, it when I had checked, was really limited yeah, it's it's uh, the limitations are becoming fewer and fewer. Um, you're seeing people like Bitlooney, for example, using it for all of his designs now. Um, it, it's going to be a little bit of development before someone like Sion 